0: Hey fanboys and fangirls, it's your host Aaron Broverman. Just wanted to let you know that if you missed Harry Tarantula's moving sale out of the downtown, Leon is doing it again, but this time at Anime North, Toronto's largest fan-run convention. Anime North runs from May 25th to 27th at Toronto Congress Centre, so find their table And uh, get 50% off on Friday. On Saturday, it's buy one, get two free. And then on Sunday, he's bringing back the buy by the pound insanity. This time, it's $10 a pound. So find their table at Anime North at the Toronto Congress Center, 650 Dixon Road in Etobicoke, and tell them Aaron sent you.
1: Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host Aaron Broverman.
0: Hello, fanboys and fangirls! Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host Aaron Broverman, and with us today we have Ali Rom Kolthoff. Allie is a member of the Spider Forest Webcomic Collective. Uh, She's here promoting her webcomic, Chiralt, Volume 3, which is now on Kickstarter until uh, May 24th. Yep. So uh, welcome, Allie. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good.
0: That's good. We've had some webcomic people on, but not too many. Uh, generally the, they're doing like print comics and stuff like that. But before we get into sort of what you do, I want to get into like how you you found it. So, how did comics uh, get into your life in the first place?
1: Oh boy. I have been reading comics since before I can remember. I my parents used to Pick up issue, like volumes of like Superman and Batman when I was really small. And uh, I started getting uh, into some more independent comics kind of towards middle school, high school. Um, I read ElfQuest during middle school, and it kind of made a huge impact on me. I was like, whoa, I can't, I got to find more comics that are like this. So I started kind of digging a little more deeply into like stuff a little outside of the mainstream. I got into Bone by Jeff Smith and uh, got heavily into manga through high school. And at some point when I was trying to draw the characters that I loved, I started thinking, you know, why don't I just try to draw my own stories and make comics of that.
0: Chirral is like a big, like I was going to say Elfquest because that looks like a big influence on what Chirral is as a, as a fantasy story
1: It was definitely one of the kind of influences that I had. It's definitely not like a direct rip, but the way that I approach my drawing in particular, like using a lot of heavy line work, a very traditional kind of approach. Um, ElfQuest, the way that it's drawn very organically and a lot of bold, bold contours. And obviously the elves. I like pointy ears. Right, right.
0: And that was like one of the first like female led independent comics, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, at least in in western in the, in those circles.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, I guess I kind of want to know like you mentioned that you your parents used to give you like Superman and Batman when you were like really small. Did they
1: collect comics as well? Um, yes, actually. Although I don't know I've never seen their collections cuz they both kind of gave them away before I was born. Um I know that my mother was into DC and my dad was into Marvel, but somehow I ended up only getting DC comics as a kid. So the Marvel universe kind of passed me by until more recently. Oh, Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So
0: what did your parents do? Like what was your what was your upbringing like?
1: Um, my parents are architects. Um, they, I mean, they're both interested in art and literature. I mean, they kind of work in a creative field. So that definitely had a little bit of a bit of an influence. And uh, yeah. Did
0: you always grow up in Toronto or?
1: Yep. Born and raised.
0: Nice, nice. So when you were thinking like, maybe I want to do this myself, because you were obviously sketching like the characters that you liked and things that you were into. What gave you the idea for Chiralt?
1: Um, Chiralt specifically kind of happened by accident because I'd been turning over a story for a very long time that was going to be all big and sweeping and epic and have a huge cast of characters. And it was a very ambitious kind of story that I kept pouring over and drawing little bits of concept art, being like, I got to get this ready and perfect so it can be the best thing um, and then at some point, you know, it just never actually happened. And one day I was just doodling in an online chat room with some other with some other friends of mine. And I just doodled this face of a character. And my friends started doodling around it, other characters interacting with them. And it kind of turned into a little we would go back and forth drawing in dialogue. So it was like they were talking to each other. And the dynamic and the personalities that kind of happened were really fun. So I was like, maybe I'll take this character who I'm super invested in right now, and I'll just quickly whip together like a setting and some other stuff to happen and uh just start turning that into a comic. It'll be practice. It's gonna be practice for a bigger thing. And then <laughs> ten years later, it has become the big thing itself. Like I just got very, very quickly invested in the characters and world that I was working on, and like suddenly it was. This was the real thing that other people were reading and enjoying. And because I was posting it as a webcomic, I got that immediate feedback from readers right away, being like, oh, I'm enjoying this. Like, I can't wait to see what happens next. And I was like, oh, you know, me too. I'm going to keep doing this. That's awesome. So how
0: would you describe, like, what Chiralt is about and who Chiralt is?
1: Um, Chiralt is a setting. Um, it's, uh, it's the name of one of the cities that the... The story kind of starts off in it's a it's a high fantasy epic um, about uh, the main character is a little girl who gets shrunk to be about maybe seven inches tall and uh, she's lost in the middle of a forest full of horrible monsters and now she can't defend herself so she enlisted the help of the first person to walk by who was a, a demon hunter named Kieran who happens to be a demon himself uh, initially he was kind of reluctant but I ended up kind of playing on that uh, the dynamic of like the older kind of badass guy and then like a small sort of protege character. And they ended up falling into kind of a sibling sort of relationship as they're just trying to get her back to her normal size. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of magical conspiracies and like they keep running into more monsters in the woods and all the mages who might know the right magic spell to get her back to normal or busy dealing with this big magic conspiracy.
0: So they kind of have to solve that conspiracy before they can get her back to normal?
1: Pretty much. Turns out that it's, uh, it's tied in with uh, Kieran's own past. So he has to deal with it personally, turns out. So why is a demon hunting his own kind? It's a little more complicated because most of the demons in this universe are very monstrous and bestial. Um and he is kind of a, a bit of an enigma. Nobody knows what kind of monster he is. He looks he looks very human, but he's got kind of creepy tree powers um that sometimes go out of control. But he was raised by humans and wants to consider himself one of them, despite everything. And uh so he has kind of gone through a lot to kind of try to prove himself that he can be like trusted and live in human society. Okay, so he hunts other
0: demons in order to sort of
1: prove that he can live in regular society? Kind of, yeah. Okay. And I mean, the ones that he hunts are like the ones that are bestial and that are just like killing people. They don't seem to have kind of a... Sentience or moral code right so but because he is among them it's easier for him to detect them sort of thing um kind of he does have a uh, he does have the ability to kind of sense where these magical entities are cool um
0: so there's three volumes of this so far like you're kickstarting the third volume right now yep the first two volumes what do they deal with? Like, what is the difference between the third volume and the first two volumes?
1: Um, well, the first volume is just kind of getting into the the characters and establishing the dynamic between the main two. And it's very much about Tico, who's the main, the little girl, who gets shrunk, kind of uh, exploring, like, what her situation is, and uh, they learn a bit about her past. And uh, volume two is kind of getting into... A little bit more about Kieran, the nature of his abilities. And volume three is where kind of the the magical conspiracy really starts to kick into gear. And uh, they gain a couple more party members, some more like fun characters, Uh, and uh, the mages and the organization of mages that controls a lot of the kind of politics and economic, cultural civilization within my story. Uh, They become a much larger player in that book. Uh, So you just keep
0: expanding the
1: world. Basically, yeah. It's (coughs) progressing a story. I actually have the content for about five volumes right now um, because I I mentioned that I started it 10 years ago. Um, So the story has been continuing uh, for that entire time. But I didn't start printing until about three years ago when I decided to start collecting the early parts of the story and just do a volume.
0: How does it do in printed form versus web form? Like, do you get the same sort of reaction from people who buy it at shows?
1: Um, I've gotten pretty, pretty good responses from people. Um, I've always kind of considered the story to be a single long narrative that's kind of best read at once. Um, So the print seems like a very natural presentation for it are people more willing to buy it in print than they are read it
0: online? Like, did you did you see any drop-off between, like, the people that are reading it online and the people that were actually going to, like, invest?
1: Um, I don't think so. I feel like the people who would only want to read it in print weren't reading the webcomic anyway. Oh, okay. So I'm not noticing people ceasing to keep up online. Um, I'm definitely tapping into a new readership when I put it into print. Like, people who might have been interested before, but they're like, I don't like reading comics on the screen. Because there's definitely people who much prefer to hold a book in their hands and sit down with it.
0: Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to put it on the web first? Uh, this And this was 10 years ago. So yeah. web comics were not, like, I think about 10 years ago, like, and maybe even uh, later than that. Transmission X uh, and like the Raid Studio guys were trying to do web comics and they were some of the first people that like got attention for them in Toronto at least. Mm you know, back when like Penny Arcade was starting yeah. and stuff like that. And you're sort of around that time period. So yeah. is was at the time you started, was webcomics like in their infancy, would you say?
1: Um, kind of. There were definitely some big established titles out there like Penny Arcade. There was Mega Tokyo, which had just gotten a deal with Tokyo Pop to get put into print. There were some long runners that had big audiences and had been around for a while, but there were a lot of web comics just starting up but it was very niche and definitely the people who were starting most of the web comics at that time were just doing it with the idea of i'm just going to make a fun thing and share it with my friends and maybe 10 people like there was no expectation of reaching a wide audience or making a lot of money or at least that expectation wasn't really widespread um so I kind of started with that mindset myself because so I was you.
0: You were like, eh, "I'll put it up and see what yeah, happens,"
1: sort of thing. I was just having fun. Kind what,
0: of. What made you um, want to put it on the web instead of going the print route right right away?
1: Um, mostly, it was actually just kind of ignorance of the print route. Like, I was uh, I was just barely out of high school. I didn't really know that much about how. One would get a book from my imagination <laughs> onto a bookshelf. And the, the idea of like pitching to a publisher was just something that I didn't even know how to start looking up. So I was just making my own thing. And here was the internet. And I had some other friends who were, were putting web comics online onto websites like Comic Genesis, um, and Smack Jeeves and stuff. And it seemed like a fun thing to do, because they could hear directly from their readers. And I was like, oh, I read a lot of these things already. Maybe I'll just, you know, start doing it immediately. There's no gatekeeper that I have to get through. There's nobody I have to convince that my idea is worthwhile. I can just draw five pages, and they'll be online immediately.
0: Yeah. So how do you set up the structure? Is it like a weekly release or a daily release? Or
1: um, Right now, my webcomic is three times a week, and it's been... It's been a three times a week thing for probably f- the last four or five years or so. Um When I first started, I had seen web comics that had release schedules, but I kind of had no concept of actually applying it to my own thing. And I was working very quickly. So I actually was putting, I think one week I put 30 pages online Whoa. Um just because I had finished like every day. I was like, yeah, I got another five pages. I'll just scan them and I'll just dump them all on the website right now Um because why not? And then uh, after the first few months, I was like, you know, I could be saving these, and maybe if I lose this streak of inspiration, uh, I can have them like available to parcel out, so that I don't go like a month with no updates. Um, and I was started, that happening? Like, um, it hadn't yet at the time I was thinking about it. I think my friends were telling me, you know. Allie, it might be a good idea <laughs> to save your pages and not just dump everything on the internet the second you make it. Um, just yeah. in case, just in case.
0: And also, like, you don't want to, like, burn out, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, like you, like, you have to, like, put them up as fast as you can draw them.
1: Then I know. I mean, I was in school, and so a lot of them were drawn, like, during lecture classes and stuff that were particularly quiet. But then, like, exams hit, and I went, like, two weeks without posting anything.
0: What was your process back then? Like, did you color them digitally or like do any inking digitally or did you just draw them and scan them? And that was, and that was pretty much it.
1: Um, I had some kind of cursory knowledge of Photoshop, um, but the pages, my, my comic was then and is still completely done traditionally. Okay. Um, I, I ink it with a uh, Pentel pocket brush pen, which uh, I've been using ever since the very beginning. And uh, I tone the pages with, grayscale markers uh the brand the exact brand of like stuff that i use has changed over time Um, but i do tend to stick with the same size of sketchbook and inking materials
0: cool so walk me through like if you're going to put together a page what are like the steps for like getting it online and how did you like select the website you were going to use to host and those sorts of things like
1: um after after the page is made, um I would scan it uh, into the computer and re-letter uh, the text to make sure that it's legible because I have very terrible handwriting. I've always been self-hosted, which means that I have hosting through Bluehost actually, which doesn't provide any templates for posting web comics or anything. So that had to be kind of hand coded. At the very beginning, The entire thing was just done with HTML. So for every page that I uploaded, I had to also create an HTML page that had the navigation links leading to the previous page and to the next page. So I was writing those in by hand and then uploading them to the web server. And where did you get your HTML knowledge from? The internet? I just Googled around a whole bunch of places. I had some friends who had made a previous website And I would just kind of take that basic code and be like, oh, that's how you add an image. That's how you add a hyperlink. And I would just take that and put it into my own page. Was it super, super time consuming? Overall, definitely um but it didn't seem to be time consuming because i was just starting so it was like oh yeah i can make like two html pages and save them really quickly but at the when once i got up to like 100 pages 150 pages i started to realize i'm going to need another solution for this because if i ever need want to update the appearance of my website at the time it was just a white background there was no css no image no banners like nothing it was super stripped down uh, and i wanted to update it But in order to do that, I'd have to manually go into every single page and resave them with that extra HTML stuff. So I had a friend who knew PHP and she coded together uh, a new website for me where I could just upload the pages and it would automatically generate the links. Um, And then uh, when I joined, um, I don't think we've talked about Spider Forest yet, but I joined Webcomic Collective in 2009 and they have a proprietary how long have, you been code. Doing,
0: how long have you been doing the comic before you joined the collective?
1: Uh, two years. Okay. I started in 2007. And uh, I applied in 2009. And they have a proprietary code called ProPanda, which uh, is a much easier way of organizing a webcomic archive. So as soon as I had that installed, like, I'm still using it to the, like, to this day, it's the engine. So that was, it's like software that they gave you? Um, it's not full software it's uh it's php based okay. it's just a little bit of code that you add to your to your website and it'll plop in the page and the navigation links which is the main driver of having a web comic site and you can customize everything else around that with whatever kind of code you want cool
0: that's awesome so through, like, good fortune and, like, friends who knew what they were doing, you were able to, like, update the website with yep. not too much pain.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Cool. I still have an old version of it floating around in my server somewhere because I, I should just delete it already but i'm like oh it's so nostalgic what if I ever <laughs> what if i ever want to look at it again did you
0: notice like your audience numbers building like from the beginning like what was it like in terms of reaction and audience and stuff because you know what's one of a webcomic if nobody's reading it right like, yeah how did how did you sustain that for 10 years
1: initially at the very beginning i was kind of carried over by the friends who i'd been kind of discussing that very first step with the main character with, like I would show it to them and to my friends in real life. I'd be like, here's this crazy thing I'm working on. And they'd be like, oh, that's neat. So I was making it for a very tiny audience. And um I don't remember when exactly I added the shout box to my website. I guess after a while I was like, you know, it'd be interesting to know if anybody else is reading this besides the people who specifically talk to me in real life to say, hey, I'm reading this. And I added a little bit of code for people to comment uh, through a shout box and people started commenting almost immediately. And I was like, whoa, people have been like reading this thing all along. It's so crazy. Like they care about the characters and they're talking about it. That was pretty fun. And then a couple years ago, I added Discus to the website for the first time, which is a much more kind of robust commenting system that stays with the pages that people can comment on. Because uh, the way the shout box worked was that it would just appear on every page, And every comment that was made would, like, just drop down all the old stuff. Right. Um, And it didn't attach to the pages that stuff happened on. So if I had a big plot reveal and people were all like, whoa, I can't believe that happened, like, 10 pages later, those comments would still be in the same place in the shout box on every page. So it's still actually up on my website for the handful of people who, like, didn't want to go to Discus. I was like, okay, I'll leave the shout box for you guys. But it's not... I, I definitely think that having comments that follow the pages is a much more kind of interesting way.
0: In the world of like internet trolling, what kind of feedback do you receive?
1: I actually have had a pretty like good experience i haven't been <laughs> i haven't been trolled yet fingers crossed um but my commenters have been super sweet so far like they'll they'll talk to each other and like throw in fan art and stuff like that. I have friends who have dealt with that kind of thing and uh yeah it can be really rough
0: yeah that's really crazy. I hope it doesn't happen to you I hope that like the fact that you're on a podcast doesn't, doesn't invite <laughs> trolls to come to your, to come to your website. Yeah. Uh, part of me thinks like just for asking that question, I'm like, I'm like inviting people to go, Oh, you haven't been trolled. eh? Oh, no, you know what I mean? But I don't know.
1: I'm, I'm ready with the, uh, with the delete button. So <laughs> good, good. Just in case, Great. but I haven't, I
0: haven't needed to yet. So cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. So uh, now that you've been doing this for, so long, you know, basically almost exclusively on the web, what have you learned? You know, what would you like to tell, like, your younger self were you going to do this again?
1: I mean, there's things that I would tell my younger self who was just starting, and then there's things I would tell my current self if I was to start a new comic right now. Tell me both. Well, to a younger cartoonist who's starting right now, the, like, the whole... Uh, webcomic universe has changed so much since the time that I started like at initially it was just you could get go on to comic genesis or like smack jeeves or something and they were very stripped down kind of templates and you might not get that many more readers than I was getting on my very own website that was not connected to a community but now there's All these huge communities that have arisen on the web, there's places like Tapastic and Webtoon where a new cartoonist can post their story online and immediately get a pretty huge readership because these, uh, those websites are totally optimized to kind of draw in as many readers as possible and to allow those readers to hop from comic to comic so they're always discovering new content as they go. It's, uh, it may, it's a really neat way for somebody who's totally new to the medium to kind of jump in and find a place in it very quickly. And, it's definitely not for everybody and some people might start and then discover that they want the control of their own web space or that they want to join a different community than the one that they started in and that's also totally an option they can they can do that if they want.
0: And on a service like Webtoon, aren't you like one among thousands of comics?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But so, so you're fighting for attention kind
1: of. It's kind of it's funny though because I recently started a mirror of my web comic on Webtoon and um I don't think that those communities are really in competition? Or there's definitely an element of that. There's people who will downvote comics because they want their favorites to rise to the top, and there's a a culture, especially on webtoon, of people who will comment about like, oh, your content's too short and stuff like that, or they'll be very abrasive about art that they don't like or something. But because there's so many comics constantly updating. If a person wants to spend an hour on Webtoon, they're usually not reading a single archive. They're usually reading a hundred different web comics, just the newest update of all the things that they follow. So they can keep up with a lot of stuff at once and build huge subscriber lists and, uh, my my comic has gained like a thousand subscribers on Webtoon just since I posted it a couple months ago. Just because people are able to handle reading yeah. a whole bunch of comics at once. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's like, well, Webtoon is a publisher. It's like a publisher of web comics whose strategy, instead of having a few elites that they've kind of cultivated and who they're paying directly, except they also have that. They're sort of a funny entity because they have featured comics who they pay the creator a living wage to produce their content on time for them like as a publisher yeah yeah. like they have they have a contract they have exclusivity um and so there's there's comics that are actually being published and paid for by webtoon but then they also have this open submission process where like hundreds of thousands of people can submit their web comics and if they're good and people enjoy them they can just keep reading and recommending and rating them to the top and like letting their subscriber lists grow. Um,
0: So you can make it as like a featured webcomic just by being like a person who started out as, as
1: one in the regular community. I guess so. I I don't want to speak as a major expert on webtoon because I've only just started with the platform, but it's my understanding that people can start in the discovery section and then eventually get featured or they have a program going on right now where if you hit a certain threshold of subscribers or views per month, they'll pledge to your Patreon as a patron. um, For, I think, 5,000 subscribers is $100 per month. I don't remember what the page view benchmark is, but they've got some interesting monetization programs going on that, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat to see that being offered right now. Cool.
0: And speaking of Patreon, you started a Patreon... How does that help you? What made you want to start a Patreon for the comic?
1: Um, I started my Patreon two or three years ago um, when it was just kind of just getting started as a platform because I thought it was a really neat way of letting readers kind of donate and see how interested people are in seeing like extra content or early content and just what kind of market was out there for that. I didn't have like a really big planned Patreon launch. I just kind of put it on and was like, here's the things that I can offer. Uh, I guess here's what I think is a reasonable kind of rate at which to offer those things and just kind of let it loose <laughs> to see what happened. It's been working out pretty well. Like it's it pays for my art supplies, my pens and sketchbooks and my web hosting and probably a little more on top of that. Like it doesn't actually cost all that much money to host a webcomic
0: so it's basically like sustaining the webcomic like you don't have any costs that are right out of your pocket for the webcomic anymore
1: um thanks to patreon yeah basically the process of actually making it kind of pays for itself yeah, we
0: were th- we're thinking of doing that for this podcast
1: uh, eventually. So, because it's always
0: nice to have something that you're you're making that can at least pay for itself.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: for sure. What about like monetization? Like when you sell it at shows and stuff? Like, do you do do you do well at shows? Like, is this something that like is like a side project for you, or like do you think that one day you'll be able to do it like full time? Like, what what is like the financial outlook for something like this.
1: At the moment, I'm actually working on the comic full time in a way. Um I was working a full time job in the animation industry up until about March 17th and then the production that I was on finished and instead of looking for another studio gig, I was like, oh, maybe I'll focus on the comic just full time and see how far I can go when I'm 100% thinking about Charolt all the time." Um, and I have a Kickstarter running right now, which it was definitely good that I took time off work because it takes a lot of uh, energy and focus to kind of keep a Kickstarter's momentum up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a constant marketing job. And then there's also planning the book itself, making sure my pages are correctly laid out for print. It basically is a full-time job in itself. So this month, at least, I guess going to get a like pretty... Re- like. I'm gonna have uh, a lot of stuff to show for my comics work at the end of this month. Cool. Um, once volume three is printed.
0: Yeah, so you're like constantly hust- hustling on social media to like donate to the Kickstarter and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Cool.
0: Have you gotten good responses? Like, is it almost funded? Sort of funded.
1: Like? Um, it funded about a week ago. Oh, uh, nice. About about one week in. It's funny. This is my this is my third Kickstarter. And the first one, I think, was very shortly after I installed Discus on my website for the first time. Um, And I feel like that was kind of the mark of when my comics stopped being just kind of, oh, this this is for fun. It's like a little hobby side thing to like, maybe I can turn this into something a bit bigger. Um, When I started seeing that there were actually more people (laughs) invested in the story than I thought. And my first Kickstarter, I set the goal super low. It wasn't an unreasonably low number because I had a plan for what would happen if I just made barely over a $1,000. Um, I was going to do a very short run, like print maybe just a 100 books or so, print on demand, like, and then send them just to the people who backed it and then maybe have a few books left over to kind of take to shows. Um, but then the response to the Kickstarter was like way bigger than I was expecting. Um, so with the second Kickstarter... Um I had a bit, of a, a bit of a higher goal. And then with the third Kickstarter, my goal was over double, like what my second Kickstarter was. And so far, the response has been really good.
0: Wow. Do you notice that a lot of the donors are your readers? Like, how does it break down in terms of readership that already exists versus new people, people that you've never seen before?
1: Um, it's pretty interesting because Kickstarter gives you a really robust way of tracking where people are coming from within the campaign. It shows you with a really detailed breakdown, what links people are clicking to get to your campaign, basically. So it'll show me how many people are finding me through Twitter, how many people are finding me through my own main website, and how many people are finding me just through Kickstarter itself. Because they have a really efficient way of driving browsers to campaigns that they might be interested in. Like, here's what we recommend for you. Oh, you're looking at this campaign. Here's a couple more that are similar. Hmm. Oh, you're searching for web comics. Oh, you're searching for like, you know, just comics in general or local projects. Um, And it'll give you results for stuff like that. And I can actually see each page that people are coming from within Kickstarter itself. And at the moment, about 40% of my total pledges came from Kickstarter. So those are people who are finding me for the first time just through the campaign and deciding, hey, this looks good. I'll check it out. Cool. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of, like, people that make it their mission to pledge on Kickstarter anyway. Like, they go to Kickstarter looking for campaigns to patronize. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's good. It's good if you can get the attention of, like, those super backers and, like, the people that, like donate a lot to Kickstarter.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's nice. Um, I mean, one of the things that kind of makes campaigns interesting is that you can really get kind of creative with the stuff that you offer within within reason anyway, because I've seen some people flood their campaign with all kinds of rewards that are not super related to their core product. But if you can get the attention of somebody who maybe is interested in some original art, maybe the book itself is just $20. But Buying an original page of the comic might be more like 100 or 200 and if somebody's willing to do that it'll get you even closer to your goal just with one person you might convince hey i've got cool art maybe you want it on your wall
0: that's awesome no like that's that's amazing and obviously it's worked for you because this is the third time that you've that you've used it
1: yeah i think it's a great platform and i'm super happy that it exists and has done so well
0: right but then I guess the the other thing that'll sort of take up a lot of your energy is like shipping out the rewards and doing that sort of stuff oh boy yeah (laughs) so like did you have to think like I gotta keep them a little more modest so that I can actually like physically do this and like cover the shipping and like how do you think about managing that side of it like the distribution side
1: um there's a few kind of rules of thumb for like uh, fulfilling and shipping stuff, some of which I, I knew about when I was starting, some of which I didn't, and some that I kind of have been disregarding, um, generally to make things as easy as possible for a book Kickstarter. Um, if you're offering something like prints, it's great to keep the prints only about as big as the book itself so that you can ship them in the same package without needing to upgrade to a larger size of box. I totally didn't do that. My prints are 8 by 11 and my books are 6 by 8. So I have uh, two different sizes of packaging that I need to send out. But since I'm also sending like commissions and other original art, I'll just, you know, work that in. Something that I did on my first campaign that I haven't been offering on the later ones, because it turned out to be kind of a serious time sink when it came time to fulfill stuff. I had a stretch goal, which was that I would print some postcards and each postcard had a different design on it. And I was going to throw those into everybody's package as a freebie. Um, and I let people choose which postcard would go into which package which meant that when it came time to like pack up like 200 books, each one I had to really pay attention to like, oh, this person asked for design A, this person wanted design B, this person wanted design C. Right, oh, this so one it turned a. like a puzzle, oh, right? Because yeah. you have to
0: like find mm-hmm. the thing, like a giant match game.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I this time I was like, okay, I'm not going to have so much of that like choosing a thing like there's i mean there's some tiers obviously for the custom art like i've i'm gonna do what what those what those backers want but for just the book itself i'm gonna be able to just pack a book and uh maybe like i have uh stickers and bookmarks as stretch goals so if i meet those those are going to be included in each package but those are just identical so it'll be the book the bookmark maybe the stickers and then i can pack it up and put like the name (laughs) and that's done listening to speech bubble
0: we'll be right back this episode of speech bubble is sponsored by Harry tarantula go visit them at sixty nine seventy nine young street for their games nights they've got warhammer they've got star wars miniatures they've got dungeons and dragons and they have board games nights go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming How did you calculate your costs like for shipping and stuff?
1: Um shipping as a rule of thumb for kickstarters will usually be between uh 30 and 40% of your total. So my like print order size, like however much that costs, I've just got to add like a couple more a couple grand on top of that and I mean it'll vary for different projects and because I'm in Canada, it'll cost a little more than if I were in the states cuz they have um they have something called Media Mail in the U.S. that makes shipping paper media extremely uh, easy and cheap, but that doesn't exist here. So my shipping costs are going to be probably double what it would cost if I lived in any given city in the U.S., Oh man, um, which is unfortunate. But, um, I mean, because Kickstarter will let the backers pay for that, at least I know that the money is covered. hmm <laughs> For your
0: art and stuff, were you, did you go to school for it? Are you self-taught? Like, how did you learn your skills?
1: Um, I did go to art school. I went to a university called uh, NASCAD, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, which is in Halifax. And then I took a one-year postgraduate program in computer animation. My actual style is something that I guess is kind of a mixture of my school experience and self-taught because I did a lot of, you know, that you do life drawing and you learn the ins and outs of your tools, but I never had a class that showed me how to use a brush pen or how to use markers. So those particular elements of my style are kind of self-taught, but the overall, the fact that I have experience in life drawing and anatomy and all that like perspective and stuff was what school kind of helped with.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you feel that it was worth it to go to school? Like, do you feel like you're putting out a more professional product as a result of your education? Um What, you know, sometimes people regret going to art school because they didn't learn what they wanted to. And other times it really helped them.
1: I, I don't regret going to school. I feel like if I would go back, um, I might choose a different school that focused more on illustration because the school that I went to was very fine art oriented. It was, uh, it was very much in the, we'll show you how to get into galleries and write artist statements and do abstract, meaningful, like contemporary stuff. Um, whereas what I wanted to do was to write stories and illustrate those stories. And there are schools that focus on that. I just didn't realize at the time I was picking where to go that that was kind of really my goal. And, uh, I, I don't feel like going to art school is strictly necessary for other artists. Like just because it helped me in my path, um, I know a lot of people who are completely self-taught who never went to art school and have amazing stuff because they put in the time and effort to kind of do that research and practice and uh, kind of build their own skill set. And you can do it independently of school. It's just for some people, it helps to have somebody kind of on your back being like, or to mentor you kind of through it.
0: Structure and deadlines.
1: Yeah, and yeah.
0: Like some of the guests that we've had in recounting their schooling experience, they noticed that some of their teachers like looked down upon the fact that they wanted to do comics, like it wasn't high art or whatever. Yeah. Did you experience that?
1: I definitely kind of saw that at my school. I, I feel like I wasn't as bothered by it as I could have been because I... I feel like I just kind of had a very clear idea of where I wanted to go fairly quickly um, after I started. And uh, I knew my teachers weren't super into it. So depending on who was teaching the class, I would kind of treat it like, well, I'll take what I can get out of this and just kind of try to learn the valuable things that might be involved here, whether it was a totally new medium. Like I loved printmaking Um, working in, like, intaglio and etching and stuff like that. Um, Not super related to my comic stuff, but just experimenting with the medium was really interesting to me. And for life drawing, like, maybe I won't treat it like a comic thing, but, like, just looking at the anatomy of the figures and stuff, like, I'll see if I can get the teacher to play along with the things that I make. And that would
0: definitely help, like, creating characters and stuff, learning. Yeah, for sure.
1: Like, even if I'm not drawing in the same style I would use as if I was doing a totally comic-focused exercise, I don't know, I'd kind of look at, like, what my teachers liked and uh, modify my style accordingly and kind of get through school that way. What about,
0: like, panel and page layout? Because there's stuff that's specific to comics, like, you know, perspective and things like that, that, like, you have to go with, like, the panels and, like, where they are and, like, how you're going to do that. How did you learn how to do that, like formatting things on the page?
1: That was probably a mixture of um, reading a lot of comics and also uh, the people that I hung out with online, like in the uh, the webcomic communities that I participated in. Like critique circles were definitely uh, a big thing that I really enjoyed doing when I was starting out. So I got a lot of feedback focused on like panel layouts and stuff like that as I was working on the comic it's not something that my schooling ever really touched on. Um, but I got I kind of got instruction just from my peers by hanging out on webcomic forums and stuff.
0: Cool. I wanted to talk about this whole webcomic community and the Spider Force Collective. How did you get involved with the Spider Force Collective? Were they the first collective you got into? Like what was your experience in the webcomic community?
1: Um, when I was First, starting out, uh, looking for places to talk about web comics because I loved them so much. I think I found a, a forum called the Web Comic List just by Googling. I might have been looking for web comic forums, and it was the first result. Um, and I hung out there for a good couple of years. They had some forums where just a lot of other web comic creators. And a handful of readers, but mostly creators, were just hanging out and talking about comics to each other. And I heard about Spider Force through that forum because some of the other, some of the existing members of the Spider Force collective were on there and they would post when they were having an application season. And, uh, I'd kind of been seeing them around for a year or two and just decided, you know, maybe I'll go for it, see what this is all about. And, uh, I applied and got in, and Spider Forest has its own forum dedicated to talking about webcomics. And uh, I just kind of moved over there <laughs> and started talking about webcomics to the other Spider Forest members who were, yeah, really cool people.
0: Are they all from Toronto? Are they all no, over the world? Or? It's
1: uh, it's all over the world. Most of the members are in the States, but there's kind of, you can apply from anywhere because the internet is worldwide,
0: Cool. So, what is the application process for? Like, what are they, what are they weeding out?
1: The Spider Force Collective, at least when I first joined, was very focused on being a host for web comics. But they only had so much capacity, so it would be focusing on comics that had a reasonable standard of quality and uh, like dedication from the creator. The application was to make sure that you wouldn't apply and then disappear in a year or so. Or, you know, turn out to be kind of a rude person that we didn't want in the collective, just generally getting a feel for people. And it started off extremely small, like teeny tiny. Um, So it's a very close knit community. And at the time that I joined, they would only get maybe like five to ten applications in a month and uh it's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger since then so now our application period is kind of much more robust and it's democratically voted on we usually only have about 10 to 15 slots for a new comic cuz that's what we ca- we have the capacity to accommodate cuz especially if people need hosting for their web comic we've got to make sure that they get set up and in the system and their pages moved over and their website coded and maintained and everything so it's it's a lot of work for the administration of the collective. Do so. you
0: do any administration, or are you just a member?
1: Um I do I did get involved in the administrative end of things. Um, I'm not super good at the coding end of things. Um, see also, I had other people mostly code my website. Um, but I've been in the collective for so long, I guess, that I just kind of fell into that position.
0: Cool. so what do you what do you help them do
1: just decide policy for the most part and I helped set up uh, we had a big project overhauling the main web page about two years ago and uh re- renewing the forums and stuff so there was a lot of kind of heavy lifting required making sure that the forums were like everybody's account on the forum was correctly brought over and that all the boards were visible to the right people that sort of thing mm.
0: Do Have you ever met the people in the collective or are they all sort of online and, that, and that's it?
1: Um, a bit of both. Um, it's, uh, there's, I think, about 70 or 80 people in the collective now. And uh, because we're all over the world, it would be really tough to meet everybody. But we've started booking tables at conventions, especially SPX in the States, and I traveled down to visit the Spider Force table for a couple of years now. And so I've met a bunch of other members that way by kind of helping out with the booth. And uh, I went to Emerald City Comic Con this year with a couple of other members. So I got to fill out my Spider Force roster slowly collecting people.
0: Can you give me a little bit about of like the history of Sweater Force and like how it got started? Do you know it?
1: Um, In 2002, it was started by a guy uh, named Fernando Paniagua who just wanted to kind of bring together a bunch of web comics that like he was friends with the creator or that he read um, and his background was in IT. So the idea was that he would kind of code websites for them. And it, grew and then just kind of kept growing at sort of a slow pace. Um, and the founder has kind of moved on since then, but there's kind of a ring of admins and senior members who've been kind of keeping it going. And within the last three or four years, it's grown almost explosively. Like we had a, we had a really big intake season a couple of years back and, uh, a lot of really amazing web comics are in the collective kind of sharing readers with each other. And, uh, you know, contributing art and feedback to the other members, where is
0: the founder originally from? like where did uh, California they, California? So I guess you could say that that started in California kind of thing
1: it's I mean, it's always been a web ring like i I joined years after like it was kind of founded, so I don't know him personally um but it was very much a web entity in okay. my understanding at cool. least
0: so has Spider-Force got big enough where some of the people that are a part of it have been able to, like, publish their their comics, like, through a third party or, like, you know, publishers have been interested and stuff like that?
1: Um, I don't know if a lot of the members have really sought the, like, mainstream approaching a publisher route. Um, some of them have work out with publishers in other, like, mediums, like novels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I found I found that a lot of the people who are in web comics, especially now uh, web comics are in the indie way of going about doing things like having Kickstarters to get books into print, that sort of thing is uh, it's really appealing because <laughs> yes. you don't have to answer to any editor. You could just put your own work out there in the form that you want it to be in.
0: Well, and that's the independent spirit because like maybe the f- mere fact that they're in web comics is because they don't want to have to deal with. Uh, any kind of like authority or that's definitely a factor
1: like getting a taste of working totally independently it's a and starting to see success in that route makes it almost kind of hard to see like going back to a publisher after that right i'm like but i like my comic the way it is
0: right exactly exactly that's cool so you're also part of the toronto comics anthology right yes Okay, so did you you helped out on the Honest Minotaur story, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like an Honest Eds kind yeah. of story. Uh, Honest Eds is a big, huge, legendary department store in Toronto that just uh, closed at the end of 2016, for those who don't live in Toronto or Ontario. And um, y- you kind of got to do a story. Like, tell us a little bit about... Uh, that experience working on Toronto Comics Anthology?
1: Well, the story was written um, by Stephen Andrews, who was also the editor of the book. And I uh, I started working on the Toronto Comic Anthology during volume two. I was also illustrating Stephen's story for that one. How did you meet um, Stephen?
0: How did you get involved with him?
1: Um, I think I met him through, I want to say it was the Toronto Comic Embassy, um, which is a co-work studio in Chinatown that uh, people can book desks and uh, kind of work with each other um, in like a in the same space. Um, right. We had we had Megan Kearney
0: on, who's the yeah, sort of curator yeah. of the Comic Embassy. Yeah, and Megan
1: Carter too. Yeah. I kind of first heard of the Comic Embassy shortly after I'd come back into Toronto after my school experience in Halifax. And they occasionally – they used to do it a lot more often, but it's been dropping off a bit now – would have uh, big parties called high tea. And uh, every – in, like, December, they would have an extra big, like, holiday high tea party. And I think Andrew came to one of those because the space for the comic embassy is also um, hosting the comic book boot camp, uh, Uh, Ty Templeton's classes.
0: Yeah, they share uh, a rental arrangement, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So – he took the class and started the Toronto Comic Anthology, and then kind of kept coming back to the space. So I met him that way, and we got to talking about comics, and ended up illustrating a story for the second volume, and then illustrating a story for the third volume, and then illustrating a story for the fourth volume because uh, it's been a pretty good kind of working arrangement, and I really love his scripts, so.
0: Cool. And like he likes working with you, obviously. Yeah. Has he told you sort of why? Like Um It's always sort of weird to try have to tell somebody like I really like working with you and here's why. But but I'm just <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, <laughs> No, I'm just I don't wondering. know if we've
1: I don't know if we've had that conversation. We'll yeah. <laughs> go and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh I I don't know. I like it. I like doing I like doing stories. I loved the script for the honest minotaur, so
0: yeah. It's interesting. And it's cool because he is the editor, so you're always gonna have an opportunity, probably, because you know, you're sort of his regular collaborator now kind of thing. Yeah. What is the honest minotaur? What's what's it about?
1: Um so the honest minotaur is set in Honest Eds in probably the month before it closed finally. Um a couple of teenagers break into the store after hours to try to steal some of the signs because there was a big sign sale uh the signs are very iconic because they're hand painted um, and they've become a part of the honest ed's kind of appearance and memorabilia so yeah it's
0: the whole aesthetic of the shop. yeah yeah Yeah.
1: so they break in to steal the signs and they have a run-in with the minotaur who lives in honest ed's because uh, another thing Honest Ed's is famous for is being a labyrinth that everybody gets lost there. So it's just kind of a fun idea of having this labyrinth is inhabited by like a real honest to goodness minotaur out of Greek mythology. And uh, turns out that he is kind of, well, I won't spoil the story. It's just kind of a really fun, kind of cute story about finding finding a place. And it's a little bit bittersweet because Honest Ed's is closing down as we were doing the research they were having their final sale so we would go in and look around and just kind of realize like oh this whole section is devoid of merchandise cuz this is it
0: yeah it's gone they're not going to be there anymore and stuff yeah and i remember in february they had sort of a party in the building yeah but it was like put on by like another sort of independent art collective sort of thing yeah
1: like honest eds itself was gone was but gone, they took but... over the building and set up a bunch of installations throughout the hallways yeah
0: yeah crazy So that's interesting. And now it's still up, but it's mostly a feast for graffiti artists and things like that.
1: I went past it the other day, and it was just all tagged. The whole block is tagged because the entire – it's the whole neighborhood that's going down, really. Right, because
0: Ed Mervish owned Mervish Village, which is the Mm. neighborhood uh, where he would basically rent out all of those houses to, like, businesses and stuff. Yeah. At, like, cheap rent, so – that's part of it too. So like an entire neighborhood is like blocked off.
1: Yeah, well, it's a huge chunk of kind of Toronto history because Mervish Village was a really like thriving little community of small businesses. And like Honest Ed's was probably the most noticeable as you're going past it. But like the Beguiling and Little Island Comics were on there. Like there were a lot of really great shops and cafes and things. Right. And some of them
0: have moved. Like it's Mm. not just... Uh, they've shut down, never to be seen again. Some of them have moved and found other locations, including the Beguiling. And yeah, um, but
1: that part of Toronto is just never going to be the same again. It's yeah, going to be a condo. <laughs> no,
0: it's going to be a condo, like a huge condo, like that. Yeah, like I look at how far that neighborhood stretches. Mm. So if you just take Honesteds, which is like two massive buildings, and then you take the buildings that surround it, that are part yep. of. Rivers Village, like that's going to be a massive.
1: It's the whole structure. city block, basically. Yeah,
0: it's crazy.
1: I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm a little miffed that the city is even letting it happen. I feel like it should have had a historic designation just for kind of its cultural importance within the city. But right, I think they're keeping the sign. Are of, they? Because the sign
0: is inco- iconic. Okay, I because... looked into
1: it because they kept Record Sam's.
0: Right. I thought that was going the same place that, that Sam the Record Man's sign went. Oh, is it? Because I think there's somebody who is buying up all the signs oh, in man. an e- in effort to like put them in a future sign museum or something.
1: Well, I heard with the Sam sign that uh, the university that kind of took over that property had the sign in storage and it was their responsibility to get it up. But they were dragging their feet because they were like, well, we don't want to deal with it. Um and they're finally it's going to be installed on like the top of a condo tower overlooking Young Dundas Square or something like that. Oh,
0: really? That's yeah. cool.
1: That that's the Sam's plan anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what happened with the Honest Eds ones. It's still
0: up last I last I saw, so I don't know what's going to happen. But I thought that there was plans to preserve the sign but I don't know it changes from. I
1: remember hearing they were up for sale um, but not that they had been sold so we'll see I'm going to look it up after this (laughs) yeah it'd be interesting to find out
0: what the deal is cool so yeah and I think the Toronto Comics Anthology launches at TCAF which is happening as we record this it's the 10th or 11th of May and so it happens this week, Saturday. So I guess that's the
1: 14th. It is like the 13th. 13th. So, 13th. so it's, 13th. it's the
0: weekend of the 13th and the 14th. TCAF, the Toronto Comics Art Festival. It's the biggest like independent comic convention that happens in Toronto every year. And uh, yeah, we're, we're recording this right now, sort of just in time for uh, the Toronto Comics Anthology to launch. So I guess to wrap up, like, now that you've been sort of a veteran of, like, web comics and stuff, is there anything that appeals to you about web comics that is specific just to comics on the web and can't be found in, like, traditional comics? Why are web comics, like, the thing that speaks to you the most?
1: I feel like it's really just that kind of unfiltered approach to expression. Because um, there's no there's no editor overseeing the final product so the artist can just put what they want right on the page directly and uh i just i really love that it it's hard to say that it's something that you can't find in traditional comics because i love print comics too and some of the main like some of the mainstream publishers are starting to put out some really amazing stuff recently actually in some cases culling talent directly from web comics who've become popular or like noticed within that field
0: is that something that you hope will happen that you'll be plucked from obscurity to <laughs> do a comic for like a mainstream publisher like image yeah. or marvel or dc or those sorts of things
1: if i was plucked to do my own comic that was my story it would be super cool um i'm not sure i i did used to wish like, oh, it'd be amazing to go and, like, be able to draw a title for, like, Marvel or DC. But I'm not sure that that's really in my goals now. Like, I I love making my own stories. I mean, it is also fun to illustrate somebody else's script. Um, and I've been enjoying doing that for the Toronto Comic Anthology. I just love indie stuff.
0: <laughs> right. And the Toronto Comics Anthology thing, that's, like, full color so.
1: Oh yeah, well, the recent issue, the previous ver, the previous anthologies were black and white,
0: right? The volume four though is full color. Yeah. So, did you have to like learn a new skill in terms of coloring, or did you get somebody else to co- to color it?
1: No, I've I've always um, I do a lot of illustration work outside of the comic or for the comic. Like all my chapter covers are in full color, and the book cover is in full color. So it's kind of a skill that. I had already developed, I just hadn't really applied it to most of my comic pages yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I finish Geralt, I want to start a new comic. And I'm thinking that I would like for that one to be in color.
0: That'd be cool. It would add like an extra layer and challenge to it, I guess.
1: It definitely will take a lot longer (laughs) to do (laughs) than the black and white.
0: Nice. What speaks to you about fantasy we when we were talking earlier you talked about most of the comics that influence you are like fantasy and cartoon books like bone and elf quest and those sorts of things what is it about fantasy that you like so much in these sort of epic adventure narratives
1: um i just love getting to see familiar emotions and like character tropes and stuff transposed into something that kind of has the potential to be really big and really epic It's a little tougher. I mean, not necessarily, like, there's a lot of really great stuff that's set, like, in the real world and, like, action thrillers and stuff like that. I don't know. There's something about fantasy that, like, it's super fun that you can throw in all the crazy concepts that you kind of want and make them fit and make them actually a real part of this world.
0: That's awesome. All right. So where can people find you? Obviously, they can donate to the Kickstarter on Kickstarter. Uh, how do you spell Chiralt?
1: It's a C-H-I-R-A-U-L-T.
0: Okay, cool. And then how do they follow you on social media? How do they read your webcomic?
1: Um, my username almost everywhere on Twitter, Tumblr, etc. is Varathane, which is V-A-R-E-T-H-A-N-E. And uh, my webcomic is available at chiralt.sevensmith.net, uh with the seven spelled out like S E V E N. It's all on, on the internet and all connected to each other. So if you go to one of those links, you should be able to find the rest of it.
0: That's awesome. Cool. Uh, anything else? Anything coming up? You mentioned that maybe you're going to do like a new comic after. Oh, after boy. Trault. Do you know sort of where you're going to go with that yet?
1: Um, It is probably going to be a space opera, Ooh. which will be a lot of fun kind of moving into a not quite science fiction. It would be an extremely soft sci-fi space opera uh, with some kind of steampunky elements. I'm working on character designs and stuff right now. So Cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for
0: coming in, and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Each the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network.
0: This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit neversleepsnetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.